This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, sports business daily media writer John O'Rand. He has been on this podcast many times. And we have a discussion on uh, Major League Baseball World Series ratings, viewership for baseball. Talk about Deadspin a little bit and their writers quitting on Moss last week. CBS has moved to get rid of Gary McCord and Peter Costas and then DAZN and starting a fight, uh, be the Canelo Alvarez fight, super, super late. So he's first up. He's followed by Tim Burke, who worked at Deadspin for seven years as a video editor, uh, also wrote and edited um, some of their most um, famous pieces. Tim is one of the co-authors of basically the Manto Teo hoax piece, one of, one of the more, I think, famous pieces of sports writing in the last uh, 15 years or so. And also behind the, uh, you probably saw the montage of news anchors at uh, who work for Sinclair Broadcasting reading from a corporate script that went viral, 30 million views or something like that. That's all Tim Burke's work. And, uh, and we go pretty long from his perspective on... Uh, what happened at Deadspin, why the writers left, Deadspin's importance in the marketplace over the years. I think you'll find that interesting from a really, really bright guy. So John O'Ran first, Tim Burke following him, both coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, as I said at the top, my first guest, a very familiar person to this podcast. It is John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily, their fine media writer. He actually may, at this point, be the person who's been on this podcast the most. I'd have to check the numbers, but I think that is the case. John, welcome back. Well, John, you you are a podcast uh, guest in demand. You know, I know you do the Sports Illustrated one still. Is there anything else that you? It's a regular occurrence for you, a regular guest spot. You know, they say the old cliche: "I go to the opening of an envelope." So, you know, you, you give me an invite, nice. I'll come. All right, let's. Um, Let's start with a little quick recap of the World Series and Fox's postseason, uh, or baseball's postseason, I should say, when it comes to viewership. So, John, I, I know you've written about this, and 
you could you know th- there are arguments to be made regarding a successful postseason for baseball or a po- or a challenging postseason for baseball. The game seven was the lowest viewership for a game seven of this decade. The series basically needed to go seven games to escape it being a total viewership disaster given, you know, the first four games, I think, or something like that, you know, lowest, lowest game one ever, lowest game two ever, et cetera, et cetera. Converse, MLB postseason viewership up 12% on Fox and FS1. Uh, viewership averaging a little under 8 million viewers. And John, as both of us know, at the end of the day, Fox is going to win every night it has the World Series, and nothing is going to come close to it in terms of viewership. So that's my sort of uh, that's my that's my intro or preamble to open this discussion on how did you view baseball's postseason metrically? Um, I think that baseball should be uh, happy, not overjoyed, uh, not despondent. I think they should they should be happy. They they get they got big numbers. And you know it's funny because when when I'm looking at those numbers, I'm just reminded of you know Bob Iger selling a book and he's going on on a a big book tour and and he had one uh, one round of interviews with the Wall Street Journal and he was just talking about how television is is changing so quickly and so fast that the the whole the whole notion of, of of ratings and comps and especially comps to like ten years ago is is uh. You know anything that holds within a couple of. Uh, that's why the NFL rating story this year is remarkable to me because it's actually showing growth, and and you're just not seeing growth really anywhere in television, and and you're starting to see, you know, sports uh, uh, fans are migrating to to streaming, and and they're getting out of sort of the the whole Nielsen rated uh, um, uh, system, um, which is sort of my long long way of saying that there are not many things. That get, I think it averaged uh, each World Series game averaged about 14 million viewers. There are not many things on television these days that get 14 million viewers. The the, the game seven was the lowest game seven of a decade. Sure, it got 23 million viewers. What else out there is going to get 23 million viewers? That's not a a, a big live sports event. And it, it's so, you know, I think they should be happy with it. Not, not but I, I don't think they should be thumping their chest, saying like, ha look at us, you know, we, we solved it. But I think it's a, it's a completely credible number. How do you feel about the sort of alphabet soup of playoff games airing on multiple channels? I understand why baseball does that, given that that's the best way to get, you know, as much money as you can via different media companies buying your rights. I do think, though, that it does create some fragmentation. It creates some ish- interest, and maybe it kills a little bit of the momentum, John, when it comes to the World Series. Obviously, unless you get the Yankees or some big team where people are just going to tune into the League Championship Series. And, and what do you do? I was in New York when the Yankees were playing a, a, a playoff game against the Astros. I forget what game it was, but it started at like three or four in the afternoon on a, on a weekday, not not even a Friday, and and it was just. You know, it, it was hard to get. You're just not going to see big television ratings with that. And so the MLB has a decision to make where they either give each game its own specific national window or they just put both games on, on in prime time and, you know, you, you toggle in, in between the two. Um, and it's uh, I'm not sure what what the answer to that is. Right, right now they, they want everybody to have their own national window. But, you know, the thought that you had – 
a you know national New York market playing in the middle of the afternoon when that would have like done great guns in prime time is is you know something that that I think that they should think about. The one thing, John, that I saw, and this is always I think something that does get passed by when it comes to baseball is local ratings. You know, the sport to me is a regional sport uh, in a in a sense. I, I and maybe that's probably a little overstating because obviously the World Series can get in the twenty millions. You know, if you have major, you know, major teams playing against each other, but sort of like the NHL at its core, it could really be a massively popular sport locally. And I saw that in D.C. there was something like a seventy-four share for the final inning of Game Seven, and that obviously would not include out of home, uh, you know, out of home metrics where people were gathered at restaurants or bars or you know airports or a hotel i mean that is a you know i'm always still blown away by the local ratings of some of these sports i mean that is a crazy share number and this is you know you're there this is right in your neighborhood yeah i other than maybe a redskins playoff game i can't think of anything in dc that that's going to get a 74 share which is what the final out uh what fox had at the final out which is essentially 74 percent of the tvs in use were tuned to that one game and uh and that one out that's that's so you know this world series had two fan bases and i live in dc uh orioles fan but uh, yeah, i jumped on the bandwagon happily and uh, cheered for the nats um and this city backed the nats uh supported the nats and and just went crazy over the nats uh same thing in houston but these the astros and the nationals aren't are two baseball brands that don't connect nationally. So I, I so so the sort of local fervor that you were seeing behind these two teams couldn't even come close to matching when the Cubs were in the in the series or uh, last year when the Red Sox were in the series, the Dodgers as well. Um, you know, there there are certain evocative national brands that just make for a better national TV story than than these two uh, than these two teams, even though locally. It, it it just they did really really well. I think that's the thing, John. Is that like uh, I think where baseball is going to be heading forward, and it's probably there now, is in order to get a massive national story, in order to sort of be in the same conversation as the NBA Finals or you know NFL low level playoffs. You're going to need the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, the Cubs, maybe the Indians if they're trying to win their first World Series in sixty plus years. But other than that, John, I think. I think the first couple of uh, games in this series and the viewership numbers that we saw, I think they're going to be more common heading forward than anything else. I think the outlier is going to be when you get like a Yankees type playing in the World Series. Uh, I I agree uh, to to a certain extent. I think that they're also, in addition to team brands, I think like there are certain players, like I keep thinking of Bryce Harper, like He's somebody that people would tune in to watch, uh, even if he only comes up four times in, in, in a game and, and uh, has a couple of balls hit to him in the in, in the outfield. I think baseball has been doing an okay job of, of developing um, uh, developing those types of stars, which is sort of what the, what the NBA has done to, to get better national numbers. But if you want to take a look at the strength that baseball has uh, locally, just take a look at the RSN uh, ratings that, during the summer. I mean, for 162 nights, or maybe not all, not all nights, 162 days a year, baseball is a top-rated show in uh, double-digit number of big markets, and that's a, that, that's a you know 
that that's a testament to to the sport. It shows that the sport is very very healthy locally and regionally. Nationally, they still have some work to do. All right, let's move to another subject, and obviously, um, one of the big ones uh, last week in sports media, you know, arguably the biggest, was Deadspin writers quitting in Moss after I think many things that had happened regarding Geo Media, but the final straw or straws were the firing of a longtime editor there and just this doubling down or continuing to push down on this edict from Geo Media saying that their writers are to do stories that are um, only sports oriented, you know, sort of the cliche of stick to sports. And obviously that's a site that had been really, really successful and particularly on posts that they wrote where they veered away from sports. And I even sort of put an asterisk on that because so much, uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows, the nexus of sports and everything else in life is there. You can try to sort of hide and avoid it. But this, John, became, um, you know, this is a story that wasn't just sort of confined to the sports media, but really blew up in the larger general media, which obviously has a lot of uh, former Gawker alums. And I think even maybe even beyond that to just sort of the general public who were trying to sort of figure out, wow, you know, a little under 20 people from this very well-known website quit, uh, in Moss. How did you, from your perspective, how did you see what happened last week? Um, you know, I think, I think what has happened is what's been happening, I think for, um, it's a continuation of what you and I have seen in, in journalism for, for many years where it's, you, you get, you know, money players that see a, a property they think they can build, uh, and that's how they view it. I don't mean to use use their jargon of property, but they they look at Deadspin. They they think they can build it, and they want to put in their sort of, uh, you know, they they, they want to rush in their ways to uh, to get that done. And uh, the you know they they don't understand journalism. They don't understand culture. They don't. I mean, what makes what, what makes that story so crazy to me is what did they think they were buying, Richard? I mean, it's deadspin for goodness' sake. They had to have some sort of clue that that, that this is what was going to happen to that. I'm with you on that. I, I guess, and again, maybe this is sort of for brighter minds than myself. But if you're going to purchase this pop property or properties from Univision, and I have no doubt they probably got them at a you know in the media world a relatively cheap price. Why on earth would you take an existing property that is, well, whether you like it or not, and all of us have sort of issues with, with that. It's been, they've done some great things and they've done some horrible things. But why would you take an existing property that has, pro- I'm sorry, would you take an existing property with proven popularity and if nothing else, proven loyalty and engagement and change the POV of that property? So I'm with you on that. I, I don't, that's, I, I get that guys think they're, you know, super smart and they, they think they can change media and there's probably some glamour to holding a media property, but that's the one for the life of me. I don't get it's, it's as if, you know what I mean? You're walking, it's as, it's as if you, you, you purchased a business to fundamentally change it. And you think the fundamental change is going to be more successful than what it was before. And I think we're going to see in the next couple months, <laughs> that calculation is going to be proven, you know, spectacularly wrong. Ooh, I wonder for the future of, of Deadspin as, a, as an actual publication and, and whether that can go forward, actually. Um, 
But that, now I've seen this before, not at, not at a sports business journal, but you know, I can guarantee you that in plenty of management meetings, they looked at Deadspin and they were like, okay, that's our sports blog. This is great. Okay. And then they had uh, what's their politics blog called, you know, and, they, and so they tried to section it without having any sense of what made Deadspin Deadspin. I would never in a billion years describe Deadspin as a quote-unquote sports blog. That's ne- It's never been a, a sports blog. It's been so, sort of a, a – I don't even know how I would describe it, but the idea that Deadspin then is just going to uh, write about, you know, only what happened on the field or, or, or you know, it just it, – that's not Deadspin. That, that's, that's, you know – the early Bleacher Report before Turner bought them <laughs> to, to a certain extent. It's a, uh, and so I I understand these uh, how management looked at it, and it's just a folly, and that's what frustrates all. That's why so many journalists stood up in support of them because everybody has seen. We're seeing it with Sports Illustrated right now. Like, okay, let's uh, let's just kind of do these. You know, Pay, pay some kids a little bit of money and do these recaps of games to get some clicks, and and it's we, we've seen that happening in our business, and we hate it because we think that there's value to what we do, uh, and and uh, and uh, it's uh, I, I completely understand the wrong-headed decision of of uh, looking in and saying like, oh well, it's a sports blog, so we'll do sports, and if if those if those people want to write politics, we have another site for them that they can write. That doesn't work. That's not Deadspin. All right, John, uh, the final one on this for you it sort of relates more to a business question. Is there a market oh, – well, I take that back. There certainly is a market for it. But would you expect someone to try to put together a Deadspin 3.0 where they you try to duplicate what Deadspin has been or what Deadspin was? Do you think anybody, any media entity would invest money in trying to make that work? Uh, yeah, I could see that happening. I, I, I'm skeptical. Uh, I mean, Deadspin, you know, Deadspin had a history, and they had people that that kind of went to it, and and the the current staff sort of benefited from, you know, having Will Leach and 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 AJ Delario and de- de- developing a a a, uh, a a consumer habit of going, and so you know, people would read Deadspin currently, and still have. You know the, some some of Will Leach's stories to uh, to to fall back on. So uh, it's it's um it, it, I think it would be more difficult to do uh, than just saying like, hiring the, the the reporters back and saying we're going to create the exact same thing. Um, but uh, but I, I wouldn't put it past a, a media company out there to uh, to try to get that done. Yeah, be interesting. I I, I wouldn't. I mean, again, you'd, whether they could pull it off would have to do with each person's individual sort of status. But I do wonder if some of the people who just recently quit would put together some kind of site or even microsite to continue to write there for a little bit. Richard, the thing that makes that easier to do is, you know, uh, Outside the Lines got canceled, and there's no way for any of those people to create another Outside the Lines. The barrier for entry is, is just so steep. But you know, to to create a, another Deadspin, it's you know, it's, it, 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 the the cost of actually doing that is much less. So it's much more possible for something like that to happen. I, I would think. So you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, the creation of it isn't the issue. That can be easily done. The question is, can you get paid? For, you know, can you can you can you can you get paid a living wage and and live your life while doing it? That's that's really sort of the ultimate uh, question. Although I have seen people. 
you know, um, create sort of the Patreon model where people essentially fund you and and pay you to, you know, do your journalism, do your work. So, um, you know, it's a hard road. Road, I, I think, but probably at least in sports, maybe one of the most famous guys is Jeff Gluck, who did it out of NASCAR. But there is a model out there; it has been done. Um, all right, two more issues, John. I want to hit you with. What did you make of CBS's move to get rid of Gary McCord and Peter Peter Costas? I know Peter Costas issued a statement to you, but that seemed to come out of nowhere. And uh, you know, I gotta be honest, felt a little cold-hearted by CBS. Yeah, you know, I haven't gotten completely inside of it. I so, so I'm going to speak uh, with, with a bunch of circumstantial evidence here. Um, CBS. Uh, right now is negotiating to keep its package of PGA Tour rights. Uh, they're they're in the middle of those negotiations, and uh, and this is this appears to me to be a way to go into those negotiations and saying we're going to uh, be, you know, our telecast is not going to be uh, as stale as maybe it has been. It's going to be freshened up. It's going to be, you know, I'm trying to use a, a lot of euphemisms for younger uh, without actually saying younger. Um, but, but you know, that, that's, that's essentially what it wants to be. I mean, Sean McNamanis, we, uh, we quoted him as, as saying, like, you know, the, the uh, CBS and Viacom together, perhaps they can get, you know, Ricky Fowler on a Nickelodeon show or something like that. They, they want to start to appeal to a younger audience, and that appears to be part of the pitch as they're going forward to uh, to the PGA Tour. John, um, one, of the, one of the stories that sort of found its way into Twitter and social media on late Saturday night was the Zone's decision to start the Canelo-Alvarez fight at, I think it was something like um, 1.18 a.m., the uh, Alvarez-Kovalov fight. And the decision by them, which was kind of an interesting one, was that they wanted to wait for the conclusion of the UFC main event. That's sort of So they held up the fight. I think it was in Vegas. So the people who were actually at the fight in Vegas had to wait a long time. There were all sorts of boxing writers who were understandably ticked off, basically saying, how could boxing sort of seed, you know, one of its... Uh, one of its bouts to to UFC. It sort of shows that boxing is a second class sport. But you have a different take on this, right? You have you you when we we're talking off air, you seem to like the strategy DeZone had, and I wondered why. Uh, I wouldn't say that I like the strategy. Uh, I, I I will say this: I understand where where the boxing writers are coming from. Um, but the boxing writers have to understand where DAZN is coming from. DAZN is still a, a, a brand new, relatively speaking, um, streaming service in, in the U.S. It is not in a dominant position, and it's going head to head against a, a Disney-funded, ESPN-branded streaming site that uh, that has a, a ton of a uh, uh, that, that has a, a, a ton of uh, subscribers. So they. DAZN wants to get subscribers. That's why they're doing these fights. That's why they signed Canelo. So do they go head-to-head, or do they try to market this and say, like, okay, you guys watch that fight, and then if you want to watch a boxing match afterwards, then come on over and give us give us uh, some money, and we'll get get added subscriptions, and, and we'll see it. it. It's not very consumer-friendly. or Actually, maybe it is consumer-friendly, because they, they didn't go head-to-head, so you could see them both. 
but it's uh, it, 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 in terms of a business decision, I think that it may it, it seemed to make good business to me because it because it, it it's something that and I haven't seen any numbers, but I would suspect that this got marketed to such an extent that you know combat sports fans, UFC fans. Um, I would bet you that a lot of them went and started subscribing to, to Zone just to see that fight last night or uh, Saturday night. That's interesting. Do you, do you so if your Zone is your? I have to sort of. I'm not really sure where I stand on this because I actually can see both sides. But if your Zone is part of your calculation, one for people on the East Coast who are going to stay up till one in the morning, whatever. Like you're already used to staying up till midnight for boxing fights. You you may be a little pissed off the next day, but You'll forget about it quick, and then is the other second part that like the zones, the zone can't care about what it says about boxing overall versus UFC. They only have to, they only can care about their product. Yeah, I, I think like you know for if, for the one a.m. start time, uh, I, I bet that was a little later than than they wanted and expected. But a little was, uh, later, John. It was. I mean, come on, one eighteen uh, in the morning on the East Coast is insane. A lot later than than. Uh, but you know, I, I think you feel like if you're in, you're in, right? And uh, and and if you're going to stay up, you're going to stay up and 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 watch it. Um, I just I just think that that it uh, if the zone wants to uh, increase its subscriber base, I thought that that was a, uh, a savvy move uh, to increase its uh, subscriber base. What I don't know is whether or not they pissed off enough consumers that it, that it it uh, it hurts their brand sort of going forward. I I, I suspect that it probably won't. All right. Well, just I just want you to know all the boxing community: Kevin Ioli of Yahoo, um, Lance Pugmire of the Athletic, and then uh, Stephen Espinoza, the Showtime executive, who obviously has a lot of experience when it comes to boxing. Absolutely trashing. Oh, of course. And 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 if you trash it from uh, in the terms of, wow, how could boxing ever take a backseat to UFC? I understand that completely. Then that's a miserable decision. But if you couch it like, how can DAZN get the biggest number of, subscri- of subscribers and viewers for this fight that it, that it paid a boatload for? Uh, so if, if you look at look at it through a media lens rather than a than a uh, boxing versus UFC lens, I think it makes a lot more sense. All right, last one, John. This is very self-serving, but I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago um, saying I think Inside the NBA should be the first television show enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Are you going to introduce them when they get when, when they get in in Springfield? No, that's that's no. There's no chance of that. Uh, <laughs> although they get in, you know, that'd be nice. Uh, you know, maybe maybe I get a, 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 a Jeff Zucker T-shirt or something like that. <laughs> um, but um, you know, there's no there. There are media people in the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, under the Kurt Gowdy Award, which goes to media members who have obviously helped grow the game or have sort of showed. Um, you, you know, who have long tenured and great careers in the business. You can get in, there There are contributors in the Hall of Fame, people like David Stern or Meadowlark Lemon, who didn't necessarily play. But there's no television show. But my sort of argument was that no, you can make the argument, no entity, maybe other than David Stern, had more impact on the NBA over the last 30 years, maybe Jordan too, I guess, than uh, inside the NBA in terms of growing the game, in terms of pushing the game, terms of educating and, and entertaining people about the game how do you what do you think of my thesis john you know i don't know whether or not they, they, they would be open to, to allowing a show they're op- i talked to the hall of fame they're op- they'd be open, uh, to well, that. If they're open anybody to can it, nominate I anybody think, i can't think of another 
uh, NBA show or basketball show that that I, I think you said that it's the best studio show uh, period uh, of all time. I might put College Game Day up there uh, as uh, in, in front of it, but it's it's certainly way up there, and it, it's a long lasting, and it's not even a it's not even a pregame show. It's an entertainment show as much as it's a, ba- a basketball show, and it, it, I think that it has done a lot to promote the game. It's done a lot to draw viewers to the game, and, and uh, you know I, I know when the NBA was having its problems with uh, with China, I couldn't wait to see what what. Uh, Actually, I couldn't wait to see what Barkley had to say about the situation. And then Shaq stole the show, in my opinion. You know, in in terms of a uh, uh, having a forceful opinion. And I, I just think that they allow, you know, and er- Ernie is a traffic cop there. They, they they allow those types of really smart discussions just to happen in ways that that people want to watch and people want to tune in. And I think that you can take a, a look at the way ESPN every. It used to be every two years, and now it seems to be every single year. Changes up its show because they just can't can't figure out what uh, uh, exactly how uh, uh, TNT is, is is doing what they're doing at, at their expense. So yeah, I mean, I, I I think that they're the best NBA studio show that I that I've ever seen. And uh, if if they start if the if the hall starts to allow shows in, that that would be at the top of my list. Yeah, College Game Day for me is one A. Um or two, inside the NBA is one, uh, in terms of greatest studio shows of all time. And um, like you referenced, no other sports show had the kind of discussion that uh, was held on China the way the inside the NBA group did. You know, they, they sort of put it out there, were willing to deal with criticisms for their opinions. They weren't shy about it the way I think very... Clearly, and by the way, understandably, a lot of front-facing ESPN talent were, given the Jimmy Pitaro, uh pure politics, whatever that means, dicta. Um, and so um, I tip my hat to that show. Time and time again, they, to me, come through when it comes to sort of being current and being in the moment. John, is there anything else you would like to uh, talk about or promote before I, before I say adieu? Uh, yeah, just one thing, and that is... Uh... You know, we, we come on here and we, we, we get down in the weeds on sports media so much. Well, uh, there's Barry Frank, is a longtime uh, agent with, uh, with IMG, and he died last week. Uh, and at the, I think he was 87 years old. Uh, I, had a, I wrote a tribute to him in, uh, in uh, this week's magazine, CBS. Jim Nant voiced over uh, a really sweet tribute to him uh, during, uh, during last night's uh, 4 o'clock game. And uh, he's just somebody who I think – had a had a really big impact on the whole sports business, and I just wanted to, to reference that before heading out. I appreciate that. Uh, so check out John's piece. Also, Richard Sandemir of the New York Times wrote a very good old bit on Barry Frank, who, if you had not, if you're not familiar with his career, I mean, one of the biggest power players behind the scenes in sports media and sports business, and passed away, I think, at 87 or something like that uh, the other day. But yeah, I mean, a major, major player in the business. Uh, uh, that has led to where we are today. All right, John, listen, thank you for coming on today. I know you have other podcasts to do, I'm sure, later today. <laughs> no, you know what? You have, you have me exclusively this week, R.D. Oh, that's, a, that's, that's sweet. John, you work for a very affordable <laughs> price. You're going to so, double so my salary. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> always, exactly. All right, John O'Ran, follow him on Twitter. Follow his stories at the Sports Business 
Daily and Sports Business Journal. And again, if you are a Sports Business Daily subscriber, and I know a lot of people listen to this podcast are, uh, if you have not signed up for John and Michael Smith's newsletter yet, uh, rectify that immediately. It's seriously, it might be the best thing those guys do, and that's not to knock their great work elsewhere. But I love that newsletter. It's uh, it's conversational. It's a lot of fun to put on. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I learn a lot of stuff from it, and usually um, there's at least one part in there where John is praising a public relations person for no reason at all, but whatever. No newsletter is perfect. It's close to perfect. I, you know, I get, I get, that's the thing that gives me more internal grief. Terry left and can't believe I, I write about PR people sometimes, but, you know. Tell Terry it's great. Nate Smeltz does something that I have to, uh, I have to highlight. Yeah, I just wish you were a little more snarky with them, but yeah, whatever. We, we, we nothing is perfect. All right, John O'Rand, everyone. Thank you, John. Thanks, Artie. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, as I said at the top, Tim Burke worked at Deadspin for 70 years, serving as the video director for that site. Also, and we'll get into this, um, was a writer and reporter on some of Deadspin's uh, biggest and most notable stories ever. He is now the founder of Burke Communications. That is a media consulting group. And uh, you can find Tim on Twitter, obviously. Head to Burke Communications if you want to check out what uh, Tim is currently doing now in his media consulting. And uh, Tim Burke joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Tim, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. How's Florida, Tim? Does it still exist? It's warm you know what uh fall finally started um you know it's it's it gets later every year uh and this this year it took until after halloween uh for it to finally become weather where you can open the windows yeah i say that as i look out some of my window and see the frost in toronto here so i'm, I'm envious um all right tim you worked on that sort of gives you give people the background who don't know this but you worked on a lot of Deadspin's most memorable pieces. You were a co-writer on the Manti Teo, uh, <laughs> the headlines, Manti Teo's Dead Girlfriend, the most heartbreaking and inspirational story of the college football season is a hoax. I mean, it's probably one of the most dead, famous Deadspin stories ever, one of the biggest sports stories sort of of that era. You also were, um, you also did the montage of news anchors at a local Sinclair broadcasting station reading from a corporate script that went viral. Um, and so you were, uh, even though you haven't been in Deadspin for whatever it is, a little over a year now, you were part of sort of the ethos and POV of that place and worked on many of their biggest uh, pieces. So that's the sort of background a little bit, Tim, to start here. From your perspective, how did we end up where we were last week with Deadspin staffers quitting and Moss. I mean, it certainly really has its roots in the, the Peter Thiel funded campaign to eliminate Gawker Media. Um, that set 
the dominoes falling in such a way that the company would eventually be acquired after Gawker Media's bankruptcy by Univision. And while Univision had headed itself in a direction of, you know, digital media excellence, they ran into their own sort of financial issues that were unrelated to what was happening with the Gawker Media sites, which then became renamed Gizmodo Media. Uh, Univision really, on the TV side, had some some pretty serious problems and found themselves in a in a money crunch. So, needing cash, they they found that they could dump the Gizmodo Media sites and you know the rest of the company, including the Onion and and the Root and all those other things, um, off onto another investor. And I think that Univision didn't really concern themselves a great deal with who was going to be taking over those sites and what the future of those things were. It was, it was really just kind of an, an investment for them. And so when Great Hills, uh, the private equity fund, bought them, it sort of created a situation where uh, individuals who had had a, a great deal of, of autonomy and, and control over what they were doing with their sites were, were suddenly seeing a level of interference and, and meddling from executives that in the entire history of the company had never existed before. And when you have a corporate culture of autonomy and independence, the presence of interference from above is an immediately alarming uh, and and disconcerting thing to experience. So I think from day one, when Great Hill took over ownership, there was some concern that a day like this might be coming. All right, Tim, this leads to a lot of questions that we'll get to. And I think one of the biggest ones is, why buy Deadspin and its sibling sites if you fundamentally don't want what makes those sites popular and successful? I I think that we have a lot of um, anecdotal evidence now of private equity not understanding the industries into which they're buying. A lot of this is, you know, we, we have major, major brands like Uber, for example, that, you know, turn massive deficits year in and year out and yet are still somehow considered um, to be properties that people want to put money into. I think that the nature of where the economy has gone and, and tax law and a lot of other issues in this country over the past, um, we'll say, 12 years, but particularly in the last, you know, three years, uh, have left a lot of individuals with more money than they know what to do with. And cash on hand that maybe isn't necessarily tied to some level of business acumen. And so you can get into a situation where people can easily acquire something because they have the cash on hand, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't have any background in managing that kind of business property. And this sort of 
incompetence, you know, there's a certain amount of confidence that comes from simply having money, I imagine, or understand. And the belief that, you know, you earned this money, so you obviously are a smart person and can know how to make more of it with whatever business you're investing in seems to kind of take over, even if you actually have no concept whatsoever of what you're doing. And I, I have to imagine that um, that may be, you know, sort of what, what's happening here. Um, I I can't necessarily, I, I haven't been on the inside to know the sort of granular conversations that we have about this content, but it seems that a lot of this is simply a, a handful of individuals simply acted on their whims about content that they didn't like. Um, and that action led to a mass exodus and Deadspin because Deadspin has always been the sort of broadest topics that are covered on the site across the portfolio. I mean, Deadspin has never stuck to sports, so to say. Deadspin's always been content that appeals to Deadspin's audience, and that's a very broad mandate. Um, I think that idea that a site didn't have a specific um, topic or genre that it stuck to was something that maybe um, the GO media executives were unable to comprehend. Tim, one of the um, one of the things that Geo Media basically put out into the marketplace was that the you know the site Deadspin should I hate to sort of use the cliche stick to sports, but but Deadspin should uh, do its best to have sports as sort of the staple of whatever the posts that they were going to do were that that was sort of their mandate that was what they told staffers there you are someone and i think you put this out on twitter are someone who could back up by metrics to talk about what stories historically on the site really gained engagement page views popularity with the audience and what seems clear for anybody who's ever read deadspin is the 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 audience clearly wanted stories that were not necessarily like a recap of yesterday's like NFL game, but oftentimes what a writer had to say about the larger things in culture or something about politics or something about Donald Trump. What did what did what what findings do you have metrically that seem to disprove what Geo Media was wanting for the site? Well, I can I can talk about that, but I think the the basis of what you're saying is is really borne out insofar as Deadspin has always sought to speak with a certain kind of voice that is both intelligent but also uh, not necessarily recognizing norms and standards and you know as as the uh, site's tagline goes, you know, without access, favor, or discretion. And that voice has always been very unique. And what that means is that even a broadly viral story that could have been reprinted on any site uh, really in the world can garner more traffic simply through the way that it was framed by 
somebody who writes for Deadspin. And a great example of this is uh, in 2013, uh, I want to say it was 2013, um, the most popular article on the site was actually um, just a post about a, a viral YouTube video um, during the ice bucket challenge. There was, remember, there was a, um, you know, an ice bucket challenge meme going around and there was a video of people um, screwing it up, but it was because Barry Pachesky's approach to it with both the straightforward and profane headline and his sort of, you know, at a arm's distance away, but, you know, both laughing at and laughing with the, the people involved is what enabled that thing to go, you know, massively viral. I think 13 million people or something like that um, came to Deadspin just to watch that video because of the way that it was framed. And and by attracting writers who have that mentality, there's always been a space for writing about just about anything in a way that a large number of people are interested. And that's why non-specifically sports-related articles have always performed well at Deadspin. It's not because, not even necessarily that Deadspin's audience, which is interested in sports but is also interested in other things, uh, has a, an open sort of you know, personal interest mandate, but because the style of writing lends itself well to covering things that are happening outside and around the world, whether it be you know, television news pranks or, um, you know, any number of different things. And so over the years, uh, among the site's top performing posts of the year, a substantial percentage in some years, you know, even perhaps more than 50% of the site's top performing articles have had a tenuous or no relationship at all to sports. And, Understanding that that's who Deadspin's audience is, I, you would think, is kind of a core component of running it. And to to come in and say that um, you know that, that Deadspin's content is not adequately sports related, um, on the surface, if you don't know anything about the history and background of how. Uh, Deadspin has made money over the years, you might think that uh, it, there are some difficulties in, on the sales side. How do you explain to a client what content they're going to be advertising next to if it's, if it's, oh, it's a sports site, but they're not actually covering sports. But um, multiple individuals who work in sales for Gawker and then Gizmodo Media have made it clear that um, the advertisers don't aren't concerned about the content. They're they're concerned about you know the audience and the audience metrics for Deadspin are extremely reliable. Um, Deadspin has one of the most loyal audiences that the people who investigate these things have ever have ever seen. And that the 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 people and the, the the sort of demographics of a person who is a regular Deadspin reader can be very um, confidently predicted. And that audience member is a very desirable person when it comes to um, marketing because 
Deadspin's audience members are, you know, more highly educated, have uh, larger incomes. You know, our advertisements, you know, the the major brand sales on Deadspin throughout the years were luxury brands. We had ads from Rolex, Porsche, Lamborghini, all this stuff. Um, high profile brands marketing to high income individuals who were interested in reading whatever Deadspin writers had to write about anything. And the audience has always made that very clear. So uh, if I had to venture a guess, what we have is a new set of executives who um, maybe don't have the same ability to understand that process or I mean, we have some anecdotal evidence of their, you know, previous work and not quite understanding the the sales business and overruling sales professionals in selling campaigns that can't be satisfied traffic-wise and, and things like that. So um, that's sort of the, the background and, and leading up to that. You look at, you know, one of the most consistently popular posts every single year, always in the top 10, usually in the top five, Drew McGarry's um, Hater's Guide to the Williams-Sonoma Catalog. I, you know, worked on and off um, for, for, because it sort of defaulted to me. Um, you know, I had to work on the graphics for that post every year. I worked with Drew on getting all of the images together for the Hater's Guide. It absolutely during my seven years at Deadspin, the least favorite thing I had to do every year. It's extremely time consuming. It's not very intellectually engaging. It's just a lot of drudgery and it's a very long and complicated post. So it's a lot of work that I had to put in every single year. I was happy to do it because I knew how well the post performed, the sort of joy that it brought people. And especially that that post would be so popular on places where we normally maybe didn't perform well on Facebook, for example, that it brought in a lot of new audience members, that a lot of people saw Deadspin for the first time because they were reading Drew McGarry's Hater's Guide to the Williamson Catalog. It was an important post for the growth of the site. And the idea that an executive whose job is to help a company make money would say, this isn't the sort of content that we want, doesn't, it doesn't, I can't explain that. I can't understand that. Um, and I, I, I couldn't even try to put myself into geo media executives heads as to why they would want to have less of that type of content. I, that's a good, that's a really in-depth answer. I appreciate that. Was your, um, was your decision to leave in 2018 because you saw some of this as a potential outcome? Um, I, I suppose that's part of it. I, had I, I had really been trying from the inside to push for a lot more uh, innovation and diversifying revenue streams, uh, and I was never really in a in a position within the company to to be able to do that. I, you know, made every attempt to get myself into a, that sort of position, but it sort of seemed like that was not going to be um, possible in, in the short term future there. And so I had an opportunity to go to another site and have a, what I believed 
would have been a little more um, authority over making those kind of decisions at the same time that Univision was trying to dump um, expenditures leading up to selling the company off. And so I took a a buyout um, with the hope that Univision would sell the company and the new buyers would be much more forward thinking uh, and that I would, you know, be able to, to come back in a role that would enable that kind of um, leadership. Um, unfortunately, it sort of went in the opposite direction. <laughs> uh, and that's why Burke Communications now exists, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit. Tim, you're somebody who wrote about or covered or certainly observed ESPN uh, for many, many years when you were at Deadspin, as I did. And you may not see any parallels here, but I thought you'd be an interesting guy to ask. Do you see any parallels between what Jimmy Pataro has, uh, ESPN's president, has sort of put out there, uh, telling its front-facing people that there's not going to be any kind of pure politics talk on the network and certainly on their social media feeds with Geo Media's sort of thought process to try to get Deadspin post to, in their words, stick to sports more? Maybe. I think with ESPN, I see a parallel that's happening that happens across a lot of major national media organizations in that we are currently in a media and political space where um, facts have become debatable and I think a lot of organizations have overcorrected from accusations by individuals who have incentive to cast doubt on facts being reported by these outlets. Uh, and, and I would like the, the direct analog here is the New York Times, right? That the, um, there's this both sides ism that has arisen as a reaction to people arguing in bad faith that news they don't like is somehow biased. And the New York Times thus, you know, hires and publishes people who are disingenuously arguing things that they know aren't true. CNN has, you know, Sean Duffy, a former congressman, who has to be fact-checked live on air every time that he appears as a correspondent. Um, And they hired him as, you know, an attempt to show that they are non, a nonpartisan news organization. And I think that that's what's happening with ESPN as well. I don't, there's no evidence that people actually tune out or cancel their subscriptions or anything like that because of a perceived bias. They may report it in polling, but their human behavior doesn't reflect that. People are happy to broadcast their politics to whoever who asks, but their behavior doesn't change. And so uh, I think that when ESPN says, well, we're not going to discuss politics, it's, it's both. They don't, they're not doing that because they think it, it, the actual discussion of politics on the airwaves is, is affecting their viewership in any way. They're doing that as a, as a sort of a virtual sig- virtue signaling to the the right, right? Because that's the organ, that's the, the political side that's raising all the ruckus. Um, they're they're signaling to the right, to, oh, we hear you, and we, you know, 
we are going to eliminate these things from, you know, what we're broadcasting. The reality, Richard, is that um, the idea that, you know, for example, ESPN talent shouldn't be discussing the political um, circumstances involving Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China, uh, that taking pro-democracy stances is um, overtly political and that ESPN talent shouldn't be taking these pro-democracy stances. Contrast that with how many times ESPN broadcasts um, the national anthem. Uh, contrast that with ESPN's annual, um, you know, hosting a college basketball kickoff game on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Contrast that with all of these other things that ESPN has, all of the bowl games that ESPN owns that are partnerships with the U.S. military um, and contain all of the pro-democracy messages that come along with those business partnerships. Right. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it, ESPN is, does not have any problem with voicing uh, pro-democracy or political stances. They do it every day. Um, it's just that we're conditioned to see those things as regular parts of sports rather than challenging any kind of debatable issue. That's really well said, Tim. All right, a couple more things here. Um, I think all of us create our own professional uh, mythology uh, as well as the mythology of where we work. I, certainly, we did that at Sports Illustrated. That, that exists at The Athletic. Deadspin alums are fiercely protective of Deadspin, of what they feel the importance of Deadspin uh, is and was and the work that Deadspin did. Uh, if you can, Tim, understanding that you worked there for a long time, in your opinion, why why is, why was Deadspin important in the sports media space? I think historically it's obviously uh, sort of, I mean, ESPN as an organization is a different place because of the light shown upon it by Deadspin in the early 2000s or in the early 2010s, sorry. Uh, in the late 2000s, that is unquestionable. the The stories about misbehavior, about misogyny, about sexual harassment, all of those things, ESPN has cleaned up its act. The and, and the funny thing is, to some degree, that was bad for business for Deadspin, right? Um, ESPN got serious about. Uh, all of the things that were repeatedly being highlighted by Deadspin that they dried up the well of stories for Deadspin to report about scandals at ESPN. Um, and that's a good thing, right? That that's, that's a vital impact that shining the light on that behavior has had. And I think that that's one, you know, primary legacy for Deadspin. Deadspin also um, really, I think heralded in, an idea of uh, blogging being taken as serious journalism in a way that uh, it really bridged a gap. You, you, you go back and you look at the 
um, you know, the the famous argument between Buzz Bissinger and, and Will Leach, right, about, you know, that blogging isn't isn't real. And, you know, now blogging is where, and it, it, it's, it's to the point that blogs now don't even like the word blogging. And that was sort of a verboten when I worked at the Daily Beast and people didn't like hearing that word. Uh, whereas that was something that was at, at Gawker slash Gizmodo slash Geo Media, something that was really sort of embraced. You know, the blogging was a verb and a blog was a post and uh, it was still understanding that that's sort of, you know, what we were doing. And the flexibility, the ease of access, uh, the development of content management system technologies that enabled being able to put things out very quickly, um, I, I think is representative of the work that we were able to do at Deadspin in a way that reached very, very large audiences, whether it be something like the Manti Teo story, where, um, you know, going back to a previous media generation, um, that story, would we would not have been able to engage with that story in the way that we did if I had published it in, if it had been 1988 and I'd published it in Sports Illustrated, right? Um, the, we've been able to turn journalism into a conversation in real time. And, you know, that's the, the owners of, of Deadspin have now turned off the comments on all the posts because of the feedback has been so negative. And that really breaks my heart because I think that the comments are integral parts of the stories that have been reported and written. Um, the commenters serve a purpose from um, being the Greek chorus responding to the events of the story to being tipsters themselves, to being, uh, unfortunately, from time to time, you know, copy editors uh, pointing out typos. All those things are important. And I think that the the community of commenters that was really fostered um, in the Will Leach era of Deadspin, many, many, many people who are working as professional journalists today got their start commenting on stories in the Deadspin comments. And if you want to talk about whatever legacy that the site has, um, I think that the commenters, I mean, look, my dad, every year we would do a post at Deadspin, uh, what our parents thought of Deadspin this year um, as a sort of, you know, year-end roundup type thing. And my father's answer was always, I didn't read many of the articles, but, you know, I read all the comments. And there's a lot of people for whom the comments are, you know, an essential part of that experience. And making the commenters part of the experience of writing and publishing, I think, is is one of the things I'm proudest of um, in, in Deadspin's history. And it's something that I hope that uh, whatever the future of that operation is, uh, will continue to be. All right. Uh, one more on this, and then we'll get to what you're doing at Burr Communications. It, Tim, it strikes me, I don't think you need to be some kind of media um, analyst genius that what it's geo there's what they're hoping to do I think heading forward is not sustainable they're if they're actually able to get people to staff up and work for you know this new zombie type deadspin the the posts are not going to draw any kind of 
engagement, loyalty, page views, whatever the metrics that Geo Media wants. That's just not going to exist. And that that that's me making even the leap that they can get people to work for them. And maybe that will be the case a couple months down when things get a little less heated. Um, I, I would think eventually that they're either going to shutter that or sell, I guess, the intellectual name or the intellectual property of Deadspin elsewhere. What is your best guess as to what happens to Deadspin, whatever Deadspin is right now? Oh, gosh. I, I sincerely... I... I, here's what I can say about if they if they try to rebuild it with new staff. Um, one of the things that I always joke about with a lot of my my colleagues is how um, over seven years we hired a lot of people. We had interns who became employees, everything else, and every single new person who came in was you know for the most part every single new person who comes in I don't like them. I don't like their style of writing. I, I, I just sort of disliked them. And eventually I would come to love them because um, there's a big difference in reading a site and thinking that you understand its voice and then trying to go in and write. And what, what happens with a lot of people who start writing at Deadspin, you maybe read it for a long time, you think you understand it. It's not until spending a decent amount of time within the community of the, the, the people who crafted that voice that you really sort of understand it. Otherwise it all comes off as kind of a, um, a, a knockoff. And I think that since there's nobody left at the site, if they try to go through and hire a bunch of people, there may be people that they hire who have been reading Deadspin for 10 years, but without the institutional knowledge and the influence of the people who have actually been there during that time, um, it's always going to come off as a cheap copy and and the refinement of that tone is going to be gone forever. I have no, I mean, I couldn't tell you what they, they plan on doing with Deadspin because uh, as of, you know, our conversation right now, uh, the people who run the company still haven't even figured out how to access the site's social media account. Right. Um, th- I mean, this seems to be a a a level of managerial meltdown that I can't even comprehend. So, I, I mean, it, it seems that someone, someone enterprising will recognize that the site has, has value, the brand has value, the social accounts have value, and will try to acquire it. But um, I, I don't know how it could ever go back to having the sort of influence because that influence was built in the voice of the writers and, and without the writers, unless you somehow buy it, bring everyone back and everyone actually agreed to be, you know, restored to the way that things were. Um, I, I don't see how that ever has any impact. My concern is, is, is the site even staying online period. Um, and, you know, I, I look at, you know, tens of thousands, tens of thousands of, of posts. Um, you know, my, my work is, my professional work is almost entirely contained on that website. And so if it disappears, that's, you know, that's a, that's a personal loss for me. And, and uh, the social media accounts, so much of my work was done on the Deadspin social media accounts. And if those somehow got wiped out, what, what we would lose. So I hope for my sake and for the sake of everybody else who's ever worked there, 
that you know the 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 uh, someone in the ownership someone in the geo media management gets a clue and does something with the property that will at the very least maintain its presence as a as a website and and keeps the content online because we've seen so many sites and sometimes it's even companies that um don't sell off any properties. They just decide to wipe out uh, newspapers. This happens with newspapers all the time. You go back and you can't find an article on a newspaper that they published five years ago because they changed their CMS and didn't keep any of the old content. Uh, the the discip- you know that's the one of the biggest challenges facing uh, internet media in general is is respecting the past and uh, and and maintaining. Uh, the archives in a way that makes them readable to another generation. Yeah, listen, you just hit on something that all of us who previously worked at Sports Illustrated think about all the time, a place that's gone through multiple CMSs, and now we have no idea what the Maven is going to, I mean, that's a, a podcast in itself or multiple ones, but we have no idea what the Maven's going to do when it comes to the historical archives of Sports Illustrated, both on SI.com as well as the um, the archives of the magazine as well. All right, Burke Communications, and if you want to... Um, um, find that online, HTTPS colon slash slash Burke hyphen communications.com. I just type Burke communications. Uh, Tim's now doing media consulting, political strategy, social media training, public speaking training, crisis communication. So Tim, you're now, you have your own shop and I wonder, um, how that's working out for you and what kind of things, uh, or what kind of projects do you hope to work on? Yeah. So, um, I, I went around the idea of, of founding this back even when I was still at, at Deadspin, simply because, uh, you know, I I was one of the very first people who were on Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2006. And um, over that time, I've just been fortunate to pick up a lot of uh skills and and strategies uh, for doing news successfully on that platform Um, and taking into account all the things that I learned over over all those years working at Gawker slash Gizmodo Media uh, and my experiences subsequently. uh, I'm working with clients on developing their strategies for how they can expand their audience, specifically uh, understand, I mean, it's social because, especially, and this is especially the case for newspapers, but it also applies to television stations and, and it applies to online media outlets as well. A lot of the individuals who make decisions about how uh, a, a news brand promotes its content are people who, because they're in those decision-making positions, don't have a background in how people consume that content. And even worse especially when it comes to social media professionals, uh, we treat social media like it's a sort of, you know, second or third class form of journalism. We put entry-level employees into those positions and we don't uh, provide them the resources that they need in order to uh, perform well. And so what I work on is, is helping news organizations figure out how to take doing news on social seriously. Um, a lot of that has to do with basic 
skills training when it comes to news video and things like that. There's a lot of stuff I innovated over my years working at Deadspin about how to acquire video and turn it around quickly. And, you know, just on my personal, just on my personal Twitter account, not even a, a business anything, right? I reached 30 some million people in October. Uh, using these same skills that I'm teaching to other people now. And that was always the big thing that I, when I worked with, with, with people is, is they were always asking me for advice. How can I do this? How can I do that? And I, I've always been very free with giving that advice. And so I've turned the advice business into, well, a, a business. Uh, as for how it's going, um, it is, I, there are, and, and this may be a piece of advice that I can give that may apply to um, many, many, many uh, industries and careers in that uh, once, you know, I've always been very, I think, generous in uh, helping show people how to do things more effectively or efficiently uh, or more cheaply. And my generosity with that, with that knowledge has um, sort of sometimes made it difficult to get new clients to pay <laughs> for the privilege of having further uh, discussion of uh, of that skills training or strategizing. Uh, so we, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a, a lot of uh, individuals on those sorts of things and, and, you know, helping people understand that, uh, you know, this is my, this is my, career now. And so, you know, my time, uh, I, I get paid for my time now, uh, is, is a, is it's, it's its own, it's its own new experience. <laughs> I bet, uh, for people, uh, for individuals and or companies who want to contact you, if they're interested in this kind of consulting, how do they do that? Uh, yeah, it's just, um, you know, they can email me, uh, at Tim at Burke communicationscom They can go to the website, burke-communications.com. There's a, a good recap on there of the work that I did um, for my, my previous companies. And the sort of um, social media successes, especially that, you know, that Sinclair media video, that Sinclair broadcasting video that, you know, is up to 30 some million views across the world, um, as far as I can tell, because, you know, it, it started to get ripped off almost immediately after we published it and republished on so many other different platforms, uh, including some who have, you know, um, flipped its actual meaning on its head and are using it as an illustration that, you know, the, um, you know, the, the media companies are working together to, um, mislead you in some way. So, that's been certainly a an experience in itself, and um, the way that we put those sorts of things together quickly, and and publish them in a way that uh, reach massive audiences and increase your potential audience for your media organization or your political campaign. Those are the things that we do. Tim Burke uh, worked at Deadspin for seven years, serving as a video director for that site, writer and reporter as well. He is uh, now the founder and proprietor of Burke Communications, as he just stated, a media consulting group. Tim, I appreciate uh, you coming on today and um, and giving sort of a thoughtful synopsis of of where things were, where things stand. Um, I wish you nothing but the best of luck uh, with your communications company, and uh, and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. 
Well, I, you know, it's been my pleasure. It's unfortunate the circumstances that have led us to have this conversation, uh, but I, I, it's been very nice um, to have it regardless. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to my two guests, John O'Ran and Tim Burke, for interesting uh, conversations, hopefully uh, regarding Tim's uh, segment. That gave you a real perspective of somebody who was sort of inside the um, Deadspin world for many, many years and obviously did some of their most memorable stuff. If you like these kind of conversations, uh, previous podcast guests include last week Michael Smith. People seem to really... Uh, enjoy that or at least found it interesting he formerly of ESPN uh, and of the Sports Center 6 and his and hers now heading out to work on his own digital uh, company Isabel Krishudian is a Washington Post reporter who covers the Capitals moving to Moscow to cover Russia and Russian politics that's happening in a couple months and Mark Beach Road the, uh, my former Sports Illustrated colleague now the Players Tribune wrote a book a really great book on the Packers before that Sam Amick of The Athletic Ian Dark and Taylor Twelman of ESPN Jim Miller on ESPN in China had a uh, four of my former Sports Illustrated colleagues who were uh, laid off by the Maven and everything that came down from that Adnan Burke before that Jane McManus Katie Strang you can go into the archives and check out all these conversations if you like this kind of stuff please leave us a uh, five star review and uh some comments uh, that really really helps out maintaining the podcast and keeping it going as always my thanks to patrick antonetti for producing this podcast thank you to everybody at cadence 13 chris corcoran spencer brown john mcdermott sean cherry this is richard deitch we'll see you again on the sports media podcast